This past week, a dear member of our church sent me an article that she said she found to ring true, especially in light of how we at Grace Church of the Bay Area strive to be a family, not just participants, not just those here, but those who are family, interacting with one another, loving one another, and even expecting one another to live in a godly way. The title of this article was this, The Misunderstood Reason Millions of Americans Stopped Going to Church. And this author starts the article with this paragraph. Nearly everyone I grew up with in my childhood church in Lincoln, Nebraska, is no longer Christian. That's not unusual. Forty million Americans have stopped attending church in the past 25 years. That's something like 12% of the population. And it represents the largest concentrated change in church attendance in American history. As a Christian, I feel this shift acutely. My wife and I wonder whether the institutions and communities that have helped preserve us in our faith will still exist for our four children, let alone we might one day, let alone whatever grandkids we might one day have. Forty million Americans. Now the numbers may be a bit jarring, but I don't believe anything I just read is surprising to any of us. Fewer and fewer Americans to church. Fewer and fewer Americans have a once universal common understanding of at least the basics of the gospel. You used to be able to go to anyone on the street in any community in America and say, do you know what Christmas is about? Have you heard of Jesus Christ? And would have somewhat of an answer. These days, it's not uncommon to encounter someone who says, who's that? Not sure. What sticks out to me about this introductory paragraph is the phrase, no longer a Christian. This is a phrase that we know is not logically accurate, yet many of us have used it to describe friends or family or even ourselves at one point in our lives. We know that once a Christian, always a Christian. So you cannot technically be no longer a Christian. But we understand what, or more accurately, who this person is referring to. Those people who once considered themselves Christians who no longer believe in or follow the Lord. People that we know if they have truly turned away from the Lord, never were Christians in the first place, which might very well explain the number of 40 million. And if it is true that there are millions who fit in this category just in our country alone, it stands to reason, (coughs) excuse me, it stands to reason that the primary solution to this problem falls on government or who we vote for or society to backtrack or change, this problem falls on the shoulders of the very people that these individuals have left. In other words, it falls on the shoulders of the church. The problem of people leaving the church and turning away from the Lord is the responsibility of the church. But how do we do this? James 5, verses 19 through 20, tell us exactly how. Turn there with me. 
as we conclude our many study of the Epistle of James, verses 19 and 20, James chapter 5. And as you turn there, we are, I'm cutting in and out, aren't I? All right, let me fix that. Slowly make your way to James 5. Nineteen through twenty. My brethren, if any among you strays from the church and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This morning in these two verses I want to give you four particulars. Four particulars of saving a sinner's soul through confrontation. Saving a sinner's soul through confrontation. The first is the relationship of confrontation. The relationship of confrontation. With two words, I get this point. My brethren, he starts. My brethren, he's referring to, as he has this entire time, the ability to confront sin rests in those who have a proper definition of what sin is. That makes sense. If we have an illness, we want to go to someone who says, yes, that is an illness, who can diagnose it, who agrees that this is such and such problem in your physical body. In the same way, only those who follow the author of the definition of God, definition of sin rather, namely God, would have a right definition of sin. Now, we know that James is addressing believers throughout this book, and nothing has changed despite us being in the last sentence of the letter. Now, we have seen him use this address of brethren before throughout the epistle, and if you recall, it's usually to signal a new topic. It's just a literary device that he uses to say, I'm going to talk about something new here, and that's what he's doing here. But We cannot disregard his choice, or rather the Holy Spirit's choice of words in which he could signal a new topic. And he chooses one that relates to his readers as fellow believers, the family of Christ. He says, my brethren. Again, grammatically, he could have said a number of things to indicate that he's changing the subject. But once again, he says, my brethren, to remind them of his relationship with them as well as their relationship with God. This reminds us that it is only believers that can do what he is about to say. It is only believers who are called to address sin in someone's life such that they may repent and be saved. This comes on the heels of related issues within the life of spiritual family. Two weeks ago, we saw verse 16 of James chapter 5. It says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, if you recall, 
The context of that passage is the believer who is in sin, and as a result of that sin, he is being disciplined by God with an illness. This is not always how God's discipline for sin occurs, but in this case, that is what is happening. So the confession of one Christian sin to another allows that listening ear to pray for repentance. It is not for the sake of forgiveness. We cannot forgive people unto salvation or unto righteousness. Only God can do that. But we confess our sins to one another for the sake of accountability, for the sake of prayer, such that the sinning believer would be led to repentance, and in this case, subsequent healing, because of the end of the discipline. And you can see how James now broadens this idea in our passage this morning to the professing believer, professing believer, which does not mean true believer, professing believer who is sinning to the degree that it becomes evident that they are actually not saved. The result being that he is here straying from the truth. As Christians, we have the Word of God. And it is our goal, it is our passion to want not only our own spiritual health, but everyone else's. Whether that is to come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ so that they can be Christians, or for other Christians in the church that they would grow, that they would have the joy that we can all experience with obedience and true faith. The second goal that I mentioned, working in the lives of other believers or other professing believers, can only be accomplished if we are open with one another. If we are spending time with each other so that we can sharpen each other as we witness outward behavior and say, hey, is everything okay? Did you realize what you just did there? Let's talk about this. Let's pray about this. But also, since much sin can be hidden behind closed doors and hidden in the heart, we must be those who are getting into each other's lives in an affectionate, intimate, brotherly way, such that we are asking the hard questions. The hard questions are not, how was your day? Did you get the job? How's the pregnancy coming along? The hard questions are, how are you doing with the Lord? Is this pregnancy affecting your ability to get into the Word? Are you angry about getting fired? Are you patient? Are you content? The hard questions, we must ask them. But we must also answer them. So, since I gave you examples of what is not the hard questions, also, this is not the right answer. Fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. God is good. That's right, that is true. God is good. And you go home and walk through all the destroyed cabinets that you ripped apart because you were so frustrated with the Lord. But God is good, true. We need to answer the hard questions. We need to ask the hard questions. Not for gossip, not to be judgmental, not to feel better about ourselves in our walk with the Lord. But because, as I've said before, we're all in the same mud of sin, so why not help each other get out of it? Sometimes, 
Even among those we assume are genuine followers of Christ, this kind of brotherly camaraderie will reveal that the individual is in such unrepentant sin that it is obvious they are not a believer. You've probably heard this illustration before. This is true. This has actually been researched by other Christians because they heard the illustration so much they actually went to the Federal Reserve to see if this was true. In order to recognize counterfeit currency, federal agents are not given all the different types of counterfeit bills to look at. All they do is they spend an immense amount of time studying the real thing. And when you know what a real $100 bill looks like in every line, every dot, every nuance of Benjamin Franklin's depiction, then you will instantly recognize when there is something off. Even just the feel of the paper will reverberate in the agent's senses when he touches a counterfeit. doesn't even need to look at it because he has felt and studied the real bills for so long. In the same way, by knowing the Scriptures and witnessing the behavior of true believers, we will recognize the counterfeits. And that's maybe a tricky word there because counterfeit bills are evil and wrong and indicate greed and lying. But when we're talking about recognizing someone who thinks they're not a believer, but we recognize that they are not truly saved, we should be struck with compassion, love, heartache. I'd like to take this illustration one step further, however. It goes back to what I was just saying. No matter how well you recognize the feel and the look of a genuine dollar bill, you will never notice a counterfeit if you don't interact with it. We must interact with one another for the sake of sharpening and possibly even for the sake of leading someone to Christ for the first time. The title brethren in a biblical Christian sense implies that you're not just a brother or sister, but that you are living like a brother or sister in Christ. Not living like an individual Christian on a remote island outside of the interaction and influence and accountability of other people in the church, but as a brother or sister in Christ. You see, when we talk about, oh, this is my brother, how many siblings do you have? The title brother or sister indicates a relationship that is genetic. And so there are people, perhaps even people in this room, many in our world, who have genetic siblings, blood relatives, that they do not interact with at all. At this very moment, they don't even know where they are or what they're up to because they haven't seen them or talked to them or texted them within the last 10 years. But they are still technically their brother or sister. That's not what this word that James is using means in this context. It's more like when you are so close to a friend who is not genetically connected to you that you call them brother or sister because your friendship and bond are so close. That is what we mean or should mean when we refer to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
not just a not biological but spiritual connection because we happen to be Christians, but because we are living out that family, that brotherhood with one another. This is how we must live as brothers and sisters in Christ. As much as we sacrifice for each other, are there for each other, pray for each other, help each other move, bring each other meals, there is no more profound display of Christian brotherhood than confessing your sins to one another. Some of us, we talked about this back when we were looking at verse 16. Some of us are so private Some of us are so afraid of shame. Some of us were raised being shamed by our parents constantly all the time. And so now we're afraid to share in case the others in the church will mock us, make fun of us, gossip about us, judge us. And we say, I would rather spend $10,000 on DoorDash gift cards for people in the church who are sick or have new babies than confess my sins to them. We need to get over that. We need to get over that in our own hearts. We need to get over that as those who are to receive the confession of others. We need to get rid of our pride, our tendency to be critical, our tendency to say, really? You think that's a problem? You're sad over that? Instead of saying, hey, I don't get it. That's not a problem for me. But thank you for sharing. How can I help? How can I pray? Brothers and sisters in Christ. We may help others with sin. We may help others with confronting their sin. And it's quite possible we may help others by confronting their unbelief. It is that unbelief of someone who actually thinks they are saved that is the strange and scary reality of this whole thing. And that leads us to our second point our second particular of saving a sinner's soul through confrontation, the reality of confrontation. And that is found in the middle of the verse, if any among you strays from the truth. Within the church, within the church community, all sin must be dealt with and, if need be, involve others to help deal with it. But the particular sin that James is addressing here is the sin of straying from the truth. The reality is many so-called Christians stray. Too many of these never return. And it is that failure to return that we need to take more responsibility for in order to prevent it or deal with it when it happens. Now the word stray in the Greek means to wander. It means to go astray. Some of your English translations will use those words. We sometimes use the appropriate word apostatize, to turn from the faith. Now this can happen for many reasons, but no matter the reason, this all means that they were never saved in the first place. In other words, it does not mean that they were saved at one point, then lost their salvation. That cannot happen. It does mean that at some point they, have, they may have made a profession of faith, They may have prayed a prayer of repentance. It may also mean that they lived a very moral life and attributed it to the power of God. It may mean that they attended church faithfully. They served. They sacrificed. They taught theology and even shared the gospel with others. But in the end, this person 
was never truly saved. A good picture of this, I think I referenced this in the Q&A last week, is in Luke chapter 8 in the parable of the soils. Would you turn there with me? Luke chapter 8, verses 5 through 9, we'll read the parable and then we'll read Jesus' explanation. And I want you to notice that there is only one of the four different types of seed, there is only one that is, represents a true believer, and yet there are others outside of that true believer that had a belief and a faith and a confession and a profession and even excitement for the Lord, but they were never saved. Luke chapter 8, verses 5 through 9. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. This would be the gospel preached, no response, nothing. Verse 6. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. There was some growth there. Verse 7, other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. That would be fruit that we talked about last week, evidence of true faith. As he said these things, he would call out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is Jesus now. And his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. Jump to verse 11. Now the parable is this. Jesus is explaining. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation, fall away. So this is the one who professes faith, but when temptation comes, they give in to temptation. They want to live according to the world. Verse 14, The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. They're in the church, they're attending, but none of the fruit is genuine. Maybe they behave in a certain way, but it's not in their heart. And eventually, we all know, you can only go the, through the motions so far before the Bible and a true Bible-believing church pushes you to live in a way that honors God and you just can't do it if you're worried about the world and desire the pleasures of the world. Verse 15, but the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. And so we see a clear example from the lips of Jesus Christ himself that this can happen. Now back to James. Straying from the truth means to turn away from and reject the will of God as revealed in the Scriptures whether intellectually refusing to believe anymore or still claiming to follow Christ, but clearly rejecting His will by your sinful and worldly behavior. In other words, acting contrary to the morality of the Bible, we simply call this sin. 
apostasy, as we call it, can come about in many ways. It could be through that individual's desire to sin. Most of my friends who loudly proclaimed their faith in college at arguably the most Bible-centered church in America, being taught by one of the most prolific and well-known conservative preachers in the world who have since turned away, say they don't believe in the God of the Bible anymore. But as you dig deeper into these people's lives, it didn't start with such blatant unbelief. By the way, these individuals were small group leaders in our ministry at, in, at UCLA, at John MacArthur's church, which made them deacons of John MacArthur's church, and yet now they say they don't believe anymore. But again, it didn't start with such blatant unbelief. It started with a pursuit of a particular sin, which then led them to saying they can't believe in a God that will not allow them to do what they want to do. In other words, they have to reject Jesus Christ in order to justify their behavior. For one man that I am thinking of, he wanted to pursue a homosexual lifestyle. And so he can't believe in Jesus Christ and the Bible because the Bible won't allow it. Another lady that I was good friends with, it was a pursuit of wealth. She wanted to marry a rich guy. And in order to do that, and not only marry someone who was wealthy, but use that wealth for worldly things, she had to marry an unbeliever. And it was because of that pursuit that she in turn then said, well, then I don't want the church because the church and God are going to tell me I can't do that. So these would clearly be the seed that fell among the thorns which choked them out, the thorns being the worries and pleasures of the world. Another way that this rejection of God happens and unbelief is revealed is through deception. Often deception by a false teacher, deception through satanic powers. By the way, I hope you understand that those two things are the same. Or deception by the world. You don't need God. We have everything you need. Some I know have turned away from Christ because of the philosophies of the world, challenged in their professed faith and realized they didn't truly believe. Their faith was not real. Never heard these ideas. Never saw them through the lens of Scripture. One of the most glaring of these was my friend in college. Although I was at UCLA, she was, at the, was known as the Master's College at the time. She liked our ministry. She came all the time. She was incredibly passionate about theology, largely because of her godly father who was and is a theology of, New, of the Old Testament, a professor of, the, of Old Testament, rather. He has published several books, most recent one, Praying Through the Old Testament, very well-known, one of the most well-known and liked professors at the Master's University. But she met a man when she was studying abroad that she ended up dating that challenged her faith. She rejected the Lord. And soon after, before any evidence of repentance, got in a car accident and died in her 20s. Regardless of how it happens, it is apostasy. It doesn't matter if it is willful or unconscious. 
by personal choice or manipulated and directed by others. It is all astraying from the truth. Now the truth here that James is talking about would be all that is involved in the Scriptures, but particularly and specifically the Gospel. And something that is very important to realize from what James is saying here and has said very clearly elsewhere in this epistle is that the truth, the Gospel, is not just something that you believe, it is something that you do. And if you don't have both, you do not have genuine faith. And that, event, that individual will eventually stray. 1 John 1.6 says, If we say that we have fellowship with Him, God, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. James 2.14, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? James 2.17, Even so, faith if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Again, those who are externally part of a church, they attend, they call themselves Christians. This is who James is talking about. James says, among you. He's talking about unbelievers among you, but they stray. And this is the sad reality of confrontation, that it needs to be done Because there are those in this situation. We all know them. Some of you see them in the mirror. Not now, but know that this was you at one point in your life. We must do something about it. And James jumps from the straying person to then talking about turning him back. And this is our next particular of saving a sinner's soul through confrontation. The response of confrontation. He says in the end of the verse, and one turns him back. Obviously, the goal of all this is to turn the sinner back from his straying and turning him back to God, but this time in true repentance and faith, not just more lip service and external legalism. The phrase turns him back means just what it sounds like. It is a turnaround. It can also be translated into English, convert. And this turn is seen on a larger scale in the prophecy of the birth of John the Baptist. Listen to Luke 1.16 and where his birth, John the Baptist, is foretold. It says, And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Luke uses that same word that we have in James, but he's speaking of a nation, not an individual. But it's the same idea in that we have a people who are claiming Yahweh as their God, but strayed and now will be turned back. For us and the straying individual, it's the same idea. And just as John the Baptist, followed by Jesus himself, and then the apostles and disciples were the instruments used by the Father to turn the Israelites So God does not leave the wayward sinner today on his own, but calls us who are walking with the Lord to turn him back. I like how the ESV and NIV translate this this phrase as it gives a bit more of a gentle and compassionate angle to it. It says to bring him back. The burden is not on them. The burden is on us. But how do we turn them back? James kind of uh, jumps from straying to turning back. 
We assume that there is a biblical position he holds on how to do this. He does not mention it specifically in this passage, but we know that this involves what has been the theme of our sermon, confrontation. Part of the Christian life is addressing sin. Matthew 18, well known. It it, it jumps in our minds and we think church discipline, church discipline. And we immediately think of some sort of service or some sort of announcement where someone's name is announced. That's the end. That's months away from what we call step one. And step one does not involve the church as a whole. Step one does not involve me as a pastor or your small group leader or your spouse or anyone else. It involves you if you are the one who has witnessed the sin. Matthew eighteen fifteen. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Not talk about it not ask for prayer, not find someone who knows them better, not pastor, what do I do? It's very simple. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. And the way James phrases Jesus is, you have won your brother, is turns him back. The tendency when we see this is to talk about it, gossip about it, pray about it, and then shrug our shoulders and go about our merry way. Oh, isn't that unfortunate? But James is saying we must do something about it. We must lovingly confront this individual. This is a powerful plug for biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship is not just about honoring God and growing one another now. It is insurance for the future. To have that relationship with free and open conversation that doesn't just recognize when someone is straying, but is comfortable and capable to address it when it happens or when you see it about to happen. And as much as biblical fellowship and love for others is crucial to doing this correctly, it must, as with all things Christian, start with a love for the Lord. If you are not motivated by God's glory and His worth and His deserving to be worshipped by all creatures that He has created, then of course you're just going to sit back and say, well, that's a bummer. When we attempt to turn people back, there's a connection to the men of God who came before us. So often the prophets of the Lord that He sent to Israel, what were they doing? What was their message? They had the divine and distinct role of calling the Israelites to turn back to God. That is essentially what the prophets are doing. And this continued on in the Gospels and in the ministry of the apostles in Acts, and not just in James, but also in other epistles, we see a call to turn others back or a praising of those who have turned back. So, as heart-wrenching and discouraging as this can be to see someone in this position, it is nothing new. We are sinners, we are rebels, and part of our pride and egos is wanting to belong to something 
and not say, you know what, I don't know if I really believe this, but still find the safety and the comfort of the church while never truly believing. As true believers, when we look at the line of men who have called people back to the Lord for centuries, our faithfulness and continuation of the ministerial plans of God must not change. We must trust the Lord to do His work, but at the same time do the work of the ministry, which includes doing what we can to turn a straying individual back to Christ, pleading, begging, loving, warning. In the end, the power and the beauty of the positive results is a hopeful and encouraging motivation for us And we see this in verse 20 and our last point, the reward of confrontation. We've seen the relationship, the reality, the response, and now in verse 20, the reward of confrontation. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Here in verse 20, we are clued into what all of this means. The sinner referred to here is clearly an unbeliever. It is a word in the New Testament that speaks of those who are outside of the family or kingdom of God. Add to this definition the teaching that this will, quote, save his soul from death, affirms that we are talking about an unbeliever. Death here, of course, talking about spiritual death. The soul does not die a physical death. The soul is not physical. The death here is spiritual death. And we know this because sin is the issue at hand also. And throughout the New Testament, including James, when sin is the issue, the death spoken of is spiritual death. Spiritual death, we also call it eternal damnation. It's referred to as eternal death. It's referred to as the second death, the first death being physical death. You can even say this is hell. Proverbs 12.8 contrasts this eternal death with eternal life. Proverbs 12:28 In the way of righteousness is life and in its pathway there is no death. Even the righteous die physically so this must be referring to eternal life and subsequently James eternal death. Now this person is saved from eternal death when you turn him or her from the error of his way. We've talked about this earlier. The error not being the sins we all struggle with as believers, but turning away from the truth of the gospel. In the Greek, the word errors here is the noun form of the word strays that we saw in verse 19, which is why the ESV translates it as wandering, not errors. The word turns is the same Greek word in verse 19, and this is really interesting. It doesn't come out into English. But in the Greek, the grammatical tense points to a specific act, turns, a once-for-all turning to God in true belief and repentance. Now, there may be a process in which you are talking to the individual over time. They may need convincing that anything is wrong. But, as with all of us at the moment of salvation, there is a point in time when the turning is instantly done and they are saved. So again, Christians are encouraged to take action in the lives of the straying, in the lives of the wayward, 
to speak truth into their lives, to show them that they are on the broad road that leads to destruction, and to help them understand the wonders of coming to the narrow road. These same wonders are what James sets up for us as a powerful motivator to heed his words. Look at the verse. Will save his soul from death and covered a multitude of sins. The soul of the sinner is saved from hell because it is one for Christ. And we know that salvation is ultimately a gift from God and a work of God. But we also know that in His plan there is a human component in that all of us who are believers were preached the gospel in some form by someone, whether orally or they wrote it down in a tract or a book. When their souls are saved, the multitude of sins are then covered. This is simply an elaborate way of saying He is forgiven. So, we need to go out and share the truth with these people, share the gospel, understanding they may already know it and profess to believe it. So to encourage them to see their fruit, to see their lives, to see how they truly live and what they believe, and to go and continue the plan of God. Just as some preach the gospel to us, we now preach the gospel to them, even if they are professing believers. And if they turn, the multitude of sins are covered. They are forgiven. Multitude meaning there are many sins, and there are many kinds. So when they are saved, it is not just their sin of straying from the gospel, that is forgiven and covered, but all of their sins, including, as with us, the sins that they will commit in the future. And it is these same sins in their pre-true conversion lives that are the problem. These are the weights on their shoulders that drag them into the sinking mire of the pit of hell, being deceived, thinking they are believers. Until... One day, one of you, a faithful, gracious, loving, and brave Christian, tells them they're headed in the wrong direction, regardless of what they profess. The one James is describing here, who is straying from the truth, will have errant theology in some way in some form, which will lead to errant living. Although we want to be gracious and can often shy away from wanting to come across as judgmental, the reality is that what we are called to do here is based on observing others' behavior. The kind of strain James talks about can really be a result of many things. I've talked about it generally before, but specifically it can be liberal theology where in this context someone claimed to hold to the truth but then turns to a false religion. They say, well, it makes sense to me that I need to follow this religion to start praying to Mary or obeying the Pope or following a cult leader or a false messiah. This can be wrong theology based on his own desires and imaginings outside of any formal religion or religious teaching. I have met those who hold strong opinions on God and salvation simply based on experience and what makes sense to them, even though nobody else believes what they believe. 
Although, to be clear, many of these opinions and experiences over time have been codified into cults and in some circles false doctrine in proclaimed churches. But straying can also involve the right theology in their head, but is not permeated to their heart. The heart being their decisions, their desires, and disposition or behavior. But in the end, again, it doesn't matter what form it takes or what it looks like. What does matter is what we are called to do in response to that. This can be hard. We live in a society where we want to be politically correct. We don't want to offend, or some of us don't mind offending, but what we do mind is the reaction of people who are offended, or their friends, or society. We don't want to be judgmental. We want to be gracious. But keep in mind, there is a difference between being sinfully judgmental and righteously judgmental. You say, whoa, what? I thought it just says, do not judge. Let me give you two secular dictionary definitions of the word judgmental, straight out of an English dictionary. The first is this, and I quote, tending to make quick and excessively critical judgments especially moral ones. That sounds exactly like the judgmental that we are told not to do, right? This is what we want to avoid. This is sinful. This is the type of judgment in Matthew 7 that says, do not judge. Or John 7, 24 that says, do not judge according to appearance. That's John 7, 24, which goes on to say, but judge with righteous judgment. And that's the judgment of our second dictionary definition. And I quote, involving the use or exercise of the ability to form an opinion objectively, authoritatively, and wisely. You take that into the Christian world and we understand objectively, authoritatively, and wisely means from the Bible, according to God. And when we do that, We are being discerning. We're doing it God's way and according to God's will. And whether it's not wanting to offend, being PC, or anything else, there is a simple thought that if you have difficulty, you say, I think I need to talk to this person, but I'm not sure yet. Let's wait it out. Don't wait too long. You say, I don't want to do it. It's hard for me. They're going to be offended. Well, yeah, maybe you start compromising your own theology. Well, you know, maybe he's a Christian. He doesn't have to believe in Jesus, you know, whatever. I mean, none of you would say that, but we start looking at his behaviors. Like, well, I, I, know, I know Christians that sleep around. It's okay. They're fine. It's okay. No, you know it's not okay. And so when you start putting up those reasons not to do it, I have a simple phrase coming straight from what James is teaching us in terms of the severity of what is happening here, that will motivate you. And the phrase is simply this, heaven or hell. Because that's what James is saying. And every time you say, well, I don't think you're saying, well, I think it's okay if he goes to hell. 
I think it's okay if he is among those, which I am terrified to be part of, where Jesus says, you did this in my name, you did this in my name, but behold, I never knew you. And yet we're scared because we don't want to offend, because we don't want to be wrong, because we don't want to look bad. Heaven or hell, my friends. We must confront sin. And I know even that word, even the fact that you see it in my outline, you're like, wow, that's a harsh word. You know why it's a harsh word? Partly because we don't like receiving it. But I think mostly, this is just my opinion and experience, okay? I think mostly because we do it wrong. We don't confront sin that offends God. We confront sin because it offends us and it bothers us and it made my wife cry or hurt my son's feelings. We, offend, we confront sin because we're bothered. We want to be in control. We want to have authority. So, of course, that's a bad word. And yet, we know we are told over and over again we are to do it. Some of the people I have grown to respect and care for the most. In fact, my first ever Christian girlfriend was because of this. Because they confronted me, but in a loving and godly way. And my respect and care for them just exploded. Because I knew it wasn't about their ego, it wasn't about legalism, it wasn't about whatever. It was about their love for me, but ultimately their love for God. That's why these are the things that must drive us. So four particulars of saving a sinner's soul through confrontation. The relationship, believers, we need to do this. The reality, there are those who stray. The response, the goal is that they would turn and repent. And the reward, that they are saved and they are forgiven. And I understand that everything we've talked about this morning goes against conventional wisdom. In fact, If you think about it, the problems you have with the way churches are going these days, the reason 75% of you are here and left your former church is because they are changing their doctrine and their philosophy of ministry. They water down the gospel. They don't confront sin anymore because they think this will help the whole situation. And you look at their churches... And there's thousands of people, the majority of which end up straying. Because trying to make people feel good and say, and to to lessen the expectations of these people actually creates a greater problem. And I don't think that the 40 million people who have stopped going to church over the last 25 years is because the church is too strict or the Bible is too hard, is because people are watering down the truth. And in fact, that same article, the misunderstood reason millions of Americans stop going to church, goes on to say this. The defining problem driving out most people who leave is just how American life works in the 21st century. Contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. 
Rather, it is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life or, as one ages, the professional prospects of one's children. I would add to this comfort and fun. He goes on, The problem in front of us is not that we have a healthy, sustainable society that doesn't have room for church. The problem is that many Americans have adopted a way of life. I want you to think biblical fellowship as I read this next part. The problem is that many Americans have adopted a way of life that has left us lonely, anxious, and uncertain of how to live in community with other people. He says in the article, I think the problem of why so many people are leaving the church is because we're actually not expecting enough of Christians. When we shy away from confronting apostasy, when we live and let live, when we are afraid to offend, in other words, when ours and others' comfort and happiness is more important than their relationship with God and their eternity, then we, despite how we may feel, are adding to the problem, not fixing it. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege to know you. What a privilege to help others know you. First and foremost, Lord, we pray that if there is anyone here who thinks they are saved but is not truly, I pray that you would make it clear to them. I pray that they would turn to you, perhaps even in this time of reflection before the Lord's table, that they would realize they cannot take it because they do not have a relationship with you. For those of us who do, help us to hold fast to our faith and live in a way that we so desire your glory through the worship of all people that we would get over whatever it is that keeps us from doing this and graciously and lovingly ask the right question, ask the hard questions of others as well as of ourselves. And if anyone is straying, that we would help them to see the truth praying, pleading, admonishing, confronting, but in a way that honors you and encourages others. Pray these things in Jesus' name.